Thanks for tuning in. This edition of Outcasting will begin in a few moments. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, formerly WDFH, Westchester Public Radio. Non-commercial, non-profit, and volunteer-powered. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on Support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. And now, Outcasting. The courts have been the place where civil rights are upheld and where we make sure that there's not a tyranny of the majority. That very much is under assault because having the opportunity to replace Justice Scalia is a good thing. If he is replaced with someone who is as extreme as he was, we stay where we were, the status quo, which was a very, very dire situation for a lot of groups. This is one of the most important things in this presidential election, and it really is about keeping the rights that have been really seen as fundamental for so many people. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, a nonprofit independent producer based in New York. Hi, I'm Adam, a youth participant at Outcasting's home studio in Westchester County, New York. On this edition, we continue our discussion about the anti-LGBTQ backlash against the Supreme Court's marriage equality ruling in 2015. This is the third part of a three-part series. The entire series is available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Sydney. Our guest is the author, journalist, and LGBTQ activist, Michelangelo Signorelli. He's the host of the Michelangelo Signorelli Show, a daily talk show on Sirius XM Progress 127. He's the editor-at-large of Huffington Post Queer Voices. His most recent book is It's Not Over, Getting Beyond Tolerance, Defeating Homophobia, and Winning True Equality. Welcome back to Outcasting, Mike. Thank you. Let's briefly finish up on where we left off last time in our discussion of the anti-LGBTQ laws that have been popping up around the country. Do you think these discriminatory laws relegate LGBTQ people to second-class citizenship? There has been an attempt since the beginning of the LGBT movement to make LGBT people in law second-class citizens because we were always that before, before we were even visible, before we were even known. It was simply considered something that was never talked about, never accepted, never uh, seen as something that would ever uh, be treated equally. Once we stepped out of the shadows and started to assert ourselves, there was that attempt then in, in law, they had to do it in law, because now culture couldn't keep us down anymore, to make us second-class citizens. And I think everything we've seen from the very beginning of the early uh, activism of the Mattachine Society, through Stonewall, through the 80s and AIDS activism, uh, and beyond has been to make us second-class citizens. Even the constitutional amendment to ban marriage was about creating this second class of people and not allowing 
us to uh, participate in that way. So these laws now are just following in the same way. Now that marriage is here, okay, we have to try to make an exception. We have to try to make it so that, okay, you can marry, but you know your marriage is different. Your marriage is not the same. Uh, we don't have to cater to your marriage. We don't have to serve your your weddings. We don't have to be part of it. All of it's about making us second-class citizens. We've already discussed the massacre in Orlando in June. If you missed that part of the discussion, you can access it by clicking on the listen link on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Mike, aside from Orlando, have you seen an increase in violence against LGBTQ people in recent years? We've seen an increase in violence proportionate to the increased discussion in the culture of rights for gay and transgender people. And we've seen an increase that seems to be a reaction to gaining rights. Certainly, we saw in 2014 in many cities an increase in violence reported by uh, anti-violence groups that seemed to be very consistent with the anger against the winds we were having in the states. Uh, we saw bars that were firebombed. We saw attacks on establishments, and we saw violence on the streets. And it often would play out against the most vulnerable. So transgender women of color are really bearing the brunt of so much of the violence uh, and transgender people uh, in general. And, and as there's more discussion of transgender people in the culture and they're demonized even further, that's something we have to think about even even more. Anti-violence groups have talked about and have been reporting surges in the past few years. So the hatred coming from these groups and from politicians uh, has an effect right down on the streets. People feel to feel they're emboldened and they're allowed to express their anger against these individuals. Are American attitudes towards LGBTQ people shifting? And if so, are they changing in different directions in different areas of the country? When we look at how change occurs and how acceptance occurs, we have to have a very uh, deep understanding of bias. And what I talk about in It's Not Over in my latest book is implicit bias as opposed to explicit bias that is very important for us to understand because it will play a bigger role as we move forward and it has played a role and does play a role for so many other groups. Just because you can't express racism as boldly and be accepted in the culture doesn't mean that racism <laughs> doesn't continue in this country. And that's happening more and more now with LGBT people. It was okay or accepted, right, to say even the most uh, horrible things about uh, LGBT people. And there wouldn't be that much of a reaction, certainly not what we see now with companies supporting us and boycotts and uh, people having to apologize for saying something outrageous. But that doesn't mean that the bigotry isn't there. And I looked at 
a lot of work being done on implicit bias and how we see all these polls and we see all of these um, reports of you know enormous support for marriage equality enormous support for anti-discrimination laws you know and it's only gone up and up and up over the last few years but um those who study implicit bias say that the change in implicit bias hasn't really been that great <laughs> at all uh that uh people still uh harbor these um biases against um LGBT people. And some of the studies are really uh, fascinating, uh, but important for us to uh, look at, um, obviously, uh, in terms of the movement as well, uh, in, in, and in terms of violence, too. I mean, people are very uncomfortable still um, with gay men, with lesbians, with transgender people. Uh, they still um, have a fear uh, even if they might not express it or feel they can express it. And so, again, I think victory blindness plays into this because we think, aha, the polls have shown we're, we're, we've arrived. Uh, but when we look at the implicit bias studies, there hasn't been that much change. Uh, we have so much more work to do. LGBTQ youth are often vulnerable and at higher than normal risks of things like bullying, suicide, and other self-destructive behavior. How does this backlash affect them? It's very hard for people to, I think, process when they're very young that um, there are people out there who uh, would hurt them and who are... Um, ready to vilify them and attack them. And I think it must be a bit confusing, too, to see the visibility, to see people like Ellen DeGeneres or Tim Cook or all of these uh, people who are so uh, visible and, and out there and, and, and influential. Uh, and, and it's great that they're there, but it's got to be confusing to see that and see the support, but also see the hate and the bigotry as well, and know that it is um, visceral, and in different parts of the country, uh, it it may be even worse. Uh, certainly, uh, in the South and uh, in smaller communities in in rural areas, um, there is uh, a lot more uh, of that uh, bigotry that has been uh, allowed to be even more vocalized. And so when people see something in popular culture in the national uh, news or in, in, in the national culture, but then they look in their, in their own community and look around them, they see something different, that's got to be um, a bit jarring. And I think it does make people very uh, fearful uh, in their own communities. And I think it, it sort of shows then what kind of a disconnect there is. And I think there's a disconnect even among those of us in the LGBT community. We think if we live in New York or Los Angeles or Washington or Chicago or any other uh, big city, we think, aha, you know, here everything's great and this is all going fine and we're getting there. But meanwhile, uh, for a lot of people in Alabama and Mississippi and elsewhere in small towns and rural areas, it's a very different experience. Do you think that anti-LGBTQ sentiment trickles down to those who would commit violence against us, 
both in events like Orlando that galvanized public attention and in smaller-scale but still frequent violence against LGBTQ people? Yes, I think it makes people feel uh, emboldened to engage in violence, and uh, it makes them feel that they have that support to react and, and allow their um, hate to um, be expressed and that it's something that, you know, is allowed or encouraged in that way. Is that increasing? I think in some parts of the country, we're seeing certainly an increase in the violence uh, among people who probably feel something's been taken away from them. Uh, they're being told that something's been taken away from them, that their rights are being infringed upon, especially when you have people uh, telling them that they're the victims now, that their religious beliefs are the victims now. I think they feel they feel emboldened to react. And when they see us as the enemy or the oppressor, for some people, that will play out with violence. Tell us how the backlash widens the gap between the American ideal of equality and the reality of continuing discrimination against not only LGBTQ people, but other minorities as well. Well, we, we see a idea out there that we have come very far and that we have acceptance for so many groups. And it sometimes gets distorted into this idea that we've gone too far, we're getting too much, or these groups have taken away something, or uh, we're pandering to these groups too much, they're getting special treatment. And I think that really creates this very dangerous kind of uh, disconnect where people um, really think, wow, we've, we've actually gotten our rights and now we want more. We're being treated in a way that, uh, is better than everybody else. When in fact, uh, the reality is that we're constantly under attack. We're constantly under assault. We're still being discriminated against. We have no rights, uh, all across the country federally. People are being fired. They're being thrown out of their homes. They're, um, being told they're not going to be served, and it's perfectly legal in many places because there's no state law protecting them either. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, a nonprofit independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcasting youth participant Sydney is talking with the author, activist, and journalist Michelangelo Signorelli about the anti-LGBTQ backlash against the Supreme Court's marriage equality ruling in 2015. Earlier in this discussion, we talked about the hypocrisy, mainly from Republican elected officials who offer their thoughts and prayers to the victims and their families, but turn around and block any advancements on LGBTQ equality or reasonable gun regulation. But an issue that doesn't seem to get as much attention as it should is the Supreme Court. The Republican presidential candidates, including Donald Trump, who is now the Republican nominee, have talked about appointing Supreme Court justices who would vote to overturn Obergefell, the Supreme Court's 2015 ruling on marriage equality. 
Mike, tell us about the importance of the judicial system and how it relates to the policies of the Democratic and Republican parties. The Supreme Court right now is something that is vitally important for all of us to be uh, focused on because the death of Justice Scalia has created a 4-4 split on so many issues uh, that are important and it also has really allowed for the opportunity to really right so many of the wrongs that Justice Scalia and the other conservatives of the, on the court have been party to when it comes to civil rights, certainly when it's about LGBT people, which are going to be many of the cases coming up, it's vital that we have someone on the court in that uh, seat where Justice Scalia sat, who is fair and who is a supporter of civil rights and sees LGBT people as part of the American fabric uh, and, and part of who we are uh, as an American people and sees us as equal, that is something that is among the several issues that conservatives are determined to focus on and, and keep us from having a uh, justice who will really see us as true equals and, and, and see many people as true equals, uh, whether it's voter ID laws or abortion rights uh, or LGBT rights. Uh, there are so many groups affected by what happens with that seat on the court. And that's why we're seeing this battle that's playing out as well in the presidential election. The courts have been the place where civil rights are upheld and where we make sure that there's not a tyranny of the majority. That's what the role is of uh, the Supreme Court, the judicial branch, uh, and certainly the Supreme Court as the very uh, highest court in the land. And that very much is, um, at this point in time, under assault because while having the opportunity to replace Justice Scalia is a good thing, if uh, he is replaced with someone who is as extreme as he was, we stay where we were, the status quo, which was uh, a very, very dire situation for a lot of groups. And then if a Republican president appoints Another couple of justices, if one or two step down, uh, which is expected, we really could see the court change dramatically uh, in a way that will, uh, I think, prevent uh, LGBT rights and rights for so many people from advancing and could take away many of our rights. So uh, this is one of the most important things uh, in this presidential election, and it really is about keeping the rights that have been, I think, from the civil rights era on, uh, really seen as fundamental for so many people. The Empire State Pride Agenda, a group advocating for LGBTQ equality in New York State, disbanded recently, saying, mission accomplished. Is the mission accomplished? No. <laughs> and that was another example of victory blindness, seeing a group saying, we don't have any more work to do. There are just countless uh, numbers of things that we need to do from making sure that 
LGBT youth are protected, and we still see suicide rates that have been constant and may even be with the increased visibility and the increased visibility of the hate as well uh, going up, but we still see 40% of all suicides uh, among LGBT youth. We still see schools not dealing with inclusion of um, education about what it means to be LGBT, what it means to be transgender, what it means, to, what homosexuality is about. And then what about history? What about teaching history in schools? California passed the first law in the country to actually include history of prominent figures who were gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and do it in a way that is the same as for every other group, Latino people, African Americans, women. They're the first state to do that. Every other state needs to do it. So I don't know how New York could just decide everything's done because New York needs to do that and so much more. Gay seniors uh, have specific needs. It's a terrible uh, world out there for so many older LGBT people who find themselves needing to go into a nursing home, finding discrimination, finding nobody like them, nobody like themselves, uh, finding people don't want to treat them. Uh, I mean, the list goes on, uh, you know, from the youngest to, to the oldest in our community. And then, of course, this backlash to marriage and all of these laws being passed, you know, even in a place like New York, it's foolish for anybody to think that we've arrived. How are the mainstream media doing in terms of covering LGBTQ issues and the backlash we've been talking about? So much of the media... Uh, is hit or miss. And I think it's something we need to focus on and we need to be very vocal about. And I think people should be, especially now with the ability on social media to reach media organizations and individual reporters and tell them uh, what was uh, not good about their reporting. I think it's so vital that we speak out because Sometimes it's really great. Sometimes the coverage is really uh, terrific. And then sometimes it's terrible. It's dismal. It's non-existent. It's completely nowhere to be found. Or it's stereotype. It's stereotyping. It is not providing a full understanding of who we are. It certainly is inconsistent. And I think that's true of much of the media in general about everything. <laughs> uh, I think, again, we as LGBT people have to educate them and reach out and make sure that we're represented within the media, uh, make sure that we are among the media, and uh, make sure that we're putting our voices out there, just as you're doing here, <laughs> just as so many of us try to do because they need to be educated. And we, we, we see too often laws passed and they don't pay attention. Incidents happen and nobody focuses on it. Uh, so we need to be vigilant. Your most recent book is entitled It's Not Over. Aside from what we've been talking about, what do you mean when you say it's not over? I mean that it's never really over, that we'll always be fighting for our rights and 
fighting to keep them even after we win them that that is part of the uh struggle as a minority group you're constantly facing people who are going to try to foment that backlash so more than anything in the book i'm trying to prepare people to never think that they really can just rest that doesn't mean <laughs> that you can't have fun and enjoy being queer and enjoy uh, your life and 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 being open about who you are and celebrate who you are but you have to really uh, be vigilant about the people who would take away uh, our rights. And what I tried to do in the book as well is focus on all of the other areas uh, beyond laws and beyond politics where we kind of just accept or don't think about how much more we need to be uh, treated equally whether it's on television or in films or in the media or in sports there's an enormous amount uh that we need to do to fight for equality and visibility and true representation you know we become very uh sort of satisfied when we see a character <laughs> on TV who might be in a same-sex relationship or we see a representation of a transgender person here or there or we see a television show that focuses on a whole experience but it's on online or or somewhere else um and we think wow that's great but really these stories should be integral to everything in popular culture and they need to be deeper and they need to be more diverse uh we're not seeing the full diversity of who we are we're not seeing asian and black and uh latino uh lgbt people uh in ways that really reflect their uh, visibility as well. So all of that in popular culture uh, really needs to be challenged. And then, as I said, in the world of sports, we've had, you know, a couple of people who've, uh, you know, come out in this sport or that sport. And when it comes to male team sports, one of the most homophobic uh, arenas we see, you know, we saw Michael Sam come out and face a lot of uh, homophobia and we haven't seen anybody come out since uh, and and there was this idea that we even saw the rumors that all these football players were going to come out and then they didn't they didn't uh, in in basketball uh, as well Jason Collins came and now he's gone and you know he finished his uh, career and we haven't seen anybody else so again uh, there's just so much that needs to be done and we need to keep pushing the boundaries. Mike, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Michelangelo Signorelli is an author, journalist, and activist. His most recent book is It's Not Over, Getting Beyond Tolerance, Defeating Homophobia, and Winning True Equality. We spoke with him in the Manhattan apartment of our executive producer, Mark Sofis. As we mentioned earlier, this is a three-part series on outcasting. The entire series is available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by Outcasting's home studio in Westchester County, New York. Our youth participants include Lauren, 
Jamie, Brianna, Sydney, and me, Adam. Our assistant producer is Alex Mintz, and our executive producer is Mark Sofus. Outcasting is produced by Media for the Public Good, a nonprofit independent producer based in New York. In addition to our home studio, Outcasting has bureaus in New York City and at Michigan State University. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. You'll also find links to Outcasting Off Air, extra features from Outcasting, and connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site outcastingmedia.org under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources I'm Adam. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.